Hello and welcome to the Plaza Central podcast. Stay informed about Latin America's most pressing political, economic, and social developments. Plaza Central is a production of the Latin American program of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome to Plaza Central, a podcast of the Wilson Center's Latin American program. I am your host, Benjamin Gidan. On February 24th, Russian forces attacked several major cities in Ukraine. A month later, the invasion continues. In Europe, the war has led millions of Ukrainians to flee to neighboring nations, killed nearly a thousand civilians, and led to unprecedented sanctions on Russia. Outside Europe, the economic impacts of Vladimir Putin's aggression are also significant and growing. In Latin America, the sanctions imposed on Russia and the disruption of Russia's massive energy exports and critical farm exports from both Russia and Ukraine immediately reverberated in prices and politics. Russia's closest allies in the region, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, are of course the most directly impacted. Their diplomatic, trade, and financial links to Moscow are becoming more complicated by the day. But nowhere in the region is immune from the worsening inflationary dynamics caused by rising food and energy costs related to the war. These negative economic impacts come at a bad time. Latin America has been struggling with slow growth for almost a decade, and the regional economy was battered by the pandemic. Prior to the war, economic recovery was already slowing and prices were already rising. In Central America, poverty and the climate crisis were already worsening hunger and fueling migration. In this episode, I am joined by Charles Seville, Senior Director and Co-Head for America's Sovereign Ratings at Fitch and the Lead Analyst in the United States and Mexico. In addition to being an expert on Latin America, from 2011 to 2014, Charles was Fitch's Lead Analyst for Russia and Ukraine, so he knows a thing or two about their importance to global energy, food, fertilizer, and other markets, and the impacts on regions such as Latin America. We'll discuss the impacts of the Russian invasion throughout the Western Hemisphere, including the implications for politics and migration, and the government responses, such as costly subsidies, tax holidays, and new export controls. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Charles, I want to make sure I'm not exaggerating the impacts in the region. So maybe before we get into any particular effect of the war, you know, what would you say the scale of the impacts are through Latin America? How much it might affect recovery from the pandemic? How might it might affect existing trends such as inflation? Yeah, I think this is a pretty big shock. Uh, of course, we've just come out of an even bigger shock, which was the pandemic. Um, just stepping back a little, looking at our global forecast. So, you know, we've reduced our forecast for global growth this year. We expect uh, we've knocked a quarter point of growth off our U.S. forecast, for example. Um, we're expecting higher inflation, obviously. Uh, we're expecting interest rates to rise more sharply because there's a risk that inflation expectations get out of hand um, and policymakers want to get on top of that. And I think what that means for the region um, is that prices will be rising. Um, they already were rising, as you, as you point out. Um, it's another shock that that governments need to, to meet. So policymakers will need to raise rates more than they expected. That has uh, impact on, um, on the economy. Uh, consumers everywhere are going to lose purchasing power uh, because their, their salaries are not going to go as far. And I think governments will have to 
um, try and compensate them for that. And, and many are starting to do so. So I, I think this is a pretty big shock. And I think one of the issues is simply the uncertainty. We're only in a month into this conflict. Um, we don't know how long it's going to last. Um, there's an enormous amount of financial volatility, uh, which is also affecting um, you know, financial conditions in, in Latin America and, and emerging markets. So I, this is, a, is, I mean, to sum it up, yeah, it's a significant shock and it's quite sort of open-ended. I think our core view is that after a spike in energy prices this year uh, and food prices, we, we would expect those to moderate in, in 2023, but you know, can't necessarily count on that. And it's going to come because uh, high prices essentially uh, eat into consumption and uh, interest rates start to, to uh, crush demand. And that, that's, that's how this, we, we, will, if, we will get these prices to, to moderate again. There are some idiosyncratic impacts that you know are worth at least acknowledging. Um, the reliance of the countries that I mentioned, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, that are closest with Russia, um, including for sanctions, evasions in some cases, Brazil's reliance on fertilizer exports from Russia. Um, those in general are fairly negative impacts, and they're layered on top of what you just described in terms of a press for higher interest rates to deal with even worsening inflation. I wanted to see, Charles, if we could talk about any potential upsides for the region. And here I'm particularly thinking about the big commodity exporters in South America who are seeing, if not increasing demand for for their exports in the short term, certainly increasing prices. And this is for wheat, for example, um, from, from the breadbasket in South America. Well, you're right. We're accustomed to thinking, well, Latin America is a commodity exporting region and it should be benefiting at times of high commodity prices. I think this shock is a bit different because it's been so abrupt um, and where you have terms of trade are not necessarily improving for, for many countries. I think the ones that will benefit the most are um, oil exporters. So particularly Ecuador um, and uh, also Colombia, um, Venezuela, you know, we don't sort of talk about that much now. Um, so th for those countries, it's positive. But I think for other ones, it, it's difficult to ramp up supplies of, of commodities quickly. Um, obviously, miners and uh, oil producers can invest, but it takes time to, to increase uh, output. I think the question is how this gets distributed, because obviously there will be sectors that benefit um, sort of wheat exporters in in Argentina or soy in, in Brazil, oil producers, but copper even in, in the Andean countries. But how does this get redistributed? I think, I think governments will have to actually spend a lot of this windfall um, essentially redistributing it and may not be successful entirely in, in cushioning the blow. Yeah, so, so the, Charles, that brings us to government responses in the region, um, some of which have been criticized as rather old-fashioned and errors that that we've seen repeated through the ages, whether that's, you know, restrictions and exports that if lots of countries do can only worsen scarcity and supply chain problems, but also spending excessively despite a, a real serious debt hangover from the pandemic and from, you know, extreme counter-cyclical spending, you know, that was quite necessary um, given the public health and economic emergencies over the last few years. So, so can you just walk me through a few of the ways that governments are trying to respond to rising energy prices, food prices that are consumer facing, and, you know, what kind of ammunition they might have or not have to do so? Yeah, I think there are, there are different 
things they can do. We've seen more governments coming out with caps on fuel prices. And in some cases, these are mechanisms that were there already, but they were set at quite a high level. So, for example, in Mexico, once the oil price gets to around $100 a barrel, uh, following a commitment made by the AMLO administration a couple of years ago, they're not going to let fuel prices go higher. Um, they have a you know, an excise tax that will expand when prices are low and they will shrink it when, when prices get towards this level. Um, but after a certain point, they're going to be subsidizing the, the price of, of fuel domestically. Um, so that will, will cost money. Of course, Mexico also gets revenue from Pemex. So there's a, there's a counterweight there. Um, other countries don't have any domestic oil production. So, I know, for example, Dominican Republic has just announced a package, sort of anti-inflation package, uh, where they're going to be um, trying to hold down prices of, of food and, and fuel. Colombia remo uh, removed tariffs on a host of commodity imports. Um, Brazil has been debating, um, well, they, they've passed a law that would allow them to reduce um, diesel prices uh, and cooking gas prices, but haven't done anything about gasoline. Petrobras has become a big sort of political football in Brazil as a result of these price rises. Um, I think the issue around fuel subsidies and why multilateral uh, organizations, for example, have always advised against them is that they're very regressive. They're not targeted. They simply benefit the people that use gasoline, who tend to actually be the richer people who are using more of it. Um, so the other way that governments can cope is by increasing social transfers to, to needy households. And, you know, have seen some governments around the region talking about doing that um, because they, they should be able to identify the people that uh, would benefit most or are most in need of these of these transfers. Yes. Yeah, so so a, a key question, you know, that I'd like to hear your views on is whether the resources are available to do anything that you just described. I mean, to, to subsidize energy, to reduce taxes on energy, um, you know, various measures that sort of in boom times, maybe in certain cases might be sustainable. Um, but heading into this crisis, it just strikes me that Latin America wasn't quite in a position um, to provide the kinds of social supports that you are referencing, um, even if the politics demand it. And in fact, what we had seen was prior to the invasion, I think in, in plenty of cases, a real opposite right, approach, which was to try to pull back a lot of the excessive spending from the last few years to address this debt hangover that I referenced earlier. Well, you're right that in the last few years, uh, sort of global environment for Latin America hasn't been quite as good with lower commodity prices and so on. We saw big but very varying fiscal responses across the region to the COVID shock. So some governments spent an awful lot. Uh, Brazil, uh, for example, Mexico, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, did target some sub some uh, transfers uh, of the poor, but really didn't spend very much less than 1% of GDP directly. Um, and I, to your question about Sort of debt sustainability and public finances in the region. Yes, I mean, across the region, we saw a jump in, in debt. We did see some negative rating actions. Um, one notable one was, was Colombia, uh, which we downgraded to double B plus. Um, I think we did also see a strong bounce back economically in 2021 that was also associated with higher revenues in, in many cases. So, for example... Uh, in Central America, we got a jump in remittances uh, that really supported economies. Um, I think my concern this year is that 
terms of the few offsets, uh, we're not going to get another jump in, re in remittances to offset some of these, these negative shocks. Policymakers can't really cut rates uh, again. Um, they do face some constraints in, um, in that and also in terms of providing more fiscal support. Uh, but I, I'd say that, you know, governments do have room in terms of the costs of these measures, sort of looking around the world. Um, earlier this month, we actually did a kind of roundup of the, the anti-inflation measures that were, that were sort of starting to be put in place before the invasion. Uh, and the cost of these are typically around 1% of GDP, but I think they are liable to rise. Um, but, you know, that is a manageable cost de depending on how long it goes on for. I think the issue is it's actually difficult to offset this, um, this shock for, for governments. Um, it, it, it's not just a question of, of money. Um, I think it will, it will be difficult for them. Charles, before we conclude, I want to step back and ask about a potential longer term impact on the region or really global. And this is this renewed discussion of globalization itself changing um, and supply chains becoming either more regional, um, the so-called nearshoring, or even based more on, on shared values or, or risk mitigation, uh, meaning companies considering the sanctions that have been imposed to isolate Russia and questioning whether, in fact, countries with a similar uh, regime type might be too great a risk. The question for you know an analyst like you who focuses on the Western Hemisphere is whether there is a potential benefit of that reordering, should it occur, for Latin America, for countries that are both geographically convenient to a large market, the United States, but also that share some of the democratic values that Western Europe and the United States and their private sectors might be seeking if, in fact, there is a reshuffling in the way supply chains are built. So my questions for you are those, you know, do you see any kind of meaningful reshuffling um, occurring or serious consideration of it um, in light of the massive disruptions from the sanctions imposed on Russia and fears that, for example, China might one day be subject to a similar response from Western Europe and the United States potentially in reaction to um, aggression toward Taiwan? Um, and also whether, in fact, Latin America is well positioned to be a beneficiary should such a transition occur. Yeah, very interesting question. I've actually been following um, the progress of some of the legislation in, in D.C. currently, which is uh, aiming to try and strengthen the U.S. competitive position vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, um, which is, I think, you know, if you actually go back, going back to look at the Democratic Manifesto, there are awful lot of mentions of China and, you know, strategic uh, competition uh, and rivalry with China and what the U.S. needs to do. And I think uh, this is actually an issue that parties are united on, um, but just the details differ. So I, I do think there's a move to try and um, reduce dependence. Um, and, and clearly the pandemic uh, highlighted the fragility of some of these supply chains. And this shock is going to... Uh, shock them again because there are other uh, very vital inputs to the global economy that are now going to be in very short supply. Um, so I do think there is potentially a benefit for Latin America. I think it will be focused probably more in the sort of manufacturing countries. So uh, Mexico clearly would be the prime beneficiary um, and then Central America and uh, Dominican Republic, that some of the countries where We've seen more um, sort of manufacturing for exports. I think uh, South America is probably less well-placed to, to, to benefit from that, that part of it. Um, but I agree that uh, 
yeah, there's certainly a trend towards this, but I think it will take time. And it will also depend on countries' policies. So I think there's a widespread feeling in Mexico that there's kind of open goal here and uh, Mexico's not necessarily taking advantage of the, the potential um, for, for attracting more investment. Um, but I also would say that I think surveys of U.S. firms in China, for example, show that many of them would really prefer to stay. I mean, if you look at the complexity of China's exports, the supply chains available there, they're pretty much unrivaled anywhere, and it's very difficult to, to substitute. Um, and, you know, it will, it, this will just be a, a gradual process, I think, if, if it takes place. No, I mean, uh, an important reality check regarding the you know, complexity of any sort of decoupling from markets, particularly China, but also the need for the policy environment in Latin America to be more favorable to take advantage of these potential opportunities from so-called nearshoring or ally shoring or a reshuffling of supply chains. And, and I agree, I think Mexico has been an example of a country that is not um, taking advantage yet of what are potentially significant opportunities to, to bring in uh, foreign investment in the manufacturing sector, despite you know, a lot of you know, structural advantages. Charles, this was fascinating. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks very much. You have been listening to Plaza Central, a podcast about Latin America's most pressing political, economic, and social developments. This episode was produced and edited by Oscar Cruz. To learn more about our program, please visit wilsoncenter.org LAP. And please join us next time for another episode of Plaza Central.